Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. For more than four decades and through many, many momentous events, Robert Gates has been a fixture in American national security, intelligence, and defense policy. He served as CIA director under the first President Bush, as Secretary of Defense in the George W. Bush administration for the final two years, and then was asked to stay over by President Obama in the midst of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I sat down with Secretary Gates at the Sajid Historical Museum near his home in the state of Washington for my CNN show this week. And here's that full conversation. Secretary Gates, great to see you again here in Washington. Not that Washington. <laughs> the real Washington. As far away from the, the, the Washington, D.C. as you can possibly get at the Skagit Historical Museum near, near you uh, out here. But I know that uh, even in these bucolic surroundings, you think about the world as you uh, see it. And I wanted to ask you, we just celebrated... Um, the anniversary of D-Day. And that really was a harbinger of a new era, superpower era, and the construction of these global institutions that were assembled to try and avoid the kind of conflict uh, that uh, we were coming out of. Those institutions feel like they're fraying a little bit right now. Why? Well, I think that, first of all, the those institutions were developed in the context of the Cold War. And um, they were about development, the World Bank and, and the whole Bretton Woods financial uh, situ- uh, arrangements and so on. Um, but they were very much in the context of uh, the United States um, being really the one power that came out of World War II stronger than when it went in by, by a huge margin, and really sort of in the position to create these institutions. And, and we were the guarantor, really. And the guarantor. But, for example, <clears throat> those in, when those institutions were created in the late 40s, China was irrelevant in terms of the global economy. Uh, China was pretty much irrelevant in terms of, of the um, global scene politically. Obviously, we ended up in the conflict in Korea, but that actually was more Stalin's doing than it was uh, Mao's. And so, so we had a, a world through the Cold War where really until, ironically, the U.S. and China began to cooperate after Deng Xiaoping's visit to Washington to see President Carter in 1979, where the U.S. and China were actually allies against um, 
the Soviet Union. It was just a different world. And, and the, other, the other part of the problem, I think, is that with the end of the Cold War, the United States really began unilaterally to disarm when it came to all of the non-military instruments of power. Uh, during the Clinton administration, um, USIA is dismantled. Um, there's a move in Congress to dismantle USAID. Uh, President Clinton decides not to do that, but it's folded into the Department of uh, State. And so a lot of these institutions in the United States that were created and helped win the Cold War um, basically were dramatically weakened. And, and, and I think a lot of those institutions, people began to wonder, you know, are they relevant uh, and so on. And so I think... I Chinese think just have really the, filled that void in yeah, many and, ways. They're all over the world now um, providing infrastructure and, and other kinds of aid. And my view is that, you know, we should have been more proactive after the end of the Cold War, but more particularly as the Chinese economy began to take off, of, of sitting down with the Chinese and others and saying, maybe we ought to have another Bretton Woods. Maybe we ought to look at how we restructure these institutions to take into account uh, China's global economic power and, and the shift in uh, power in Europe and elsewhere and to modernize these institutions. And, and the problem is that, uh, to a considerable extent, there was a move to reform the World Bank and some other things, but it was blocked in the Congress. Uh, so, so the efforts to, to adapt these institutions that were created in the late 40s to a post-Cold War environment was blocked. And so they have increasingly not become irrelevant but other institutions have grown up, uh, such as the Chinese uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, that in effect challenge the role that they played. And uh, the other thing that's evolved is a reaction to these institutions, uh, a populist, nationalist, uh, because they represent globalization that not everyone sees as uh, working uh, in their benefit. And if America was the guarantor or uh, the driving force be behind these institutions before, it feels now like uh, the president is very much on the other side of the debate uh, relative to some of these institutions. He's suspicious of them, feels like America's been taken advantage of, was just in Britain uh, urging Brexit there, which is obviously uh, an issue for Europe and the European Union. Uh, what role is the president playing here? Well, I think, I think it's important to, to broaden the perspective a little bit. And what we are seeing in terms of um, backlash against globalization uh, is not limited to the United States. Right. I mean, it's really what's behind Brexit. Uh, it's what's behind Sweeping political Europe. developments in Italy yeah. uh, and in various other places. And I think in part it's because there are a lot of people um, in these countries that believe globalization has been a project of the political elites and, and, ha and they have neglected 
the consequences of globalization, not to mention technology, in terms of the lives of these people. I mean, you look at Macron's uh, gas tax. Yes. And, you know, if you live in Paris and can get on the metro, that's great. But if, you, if you're a farmer in France and need diesel to run your tractor or to take your truck into town, a big increase in the tax is a big deal. And that's why you've had these demonstrations in France for weeks on end. So I think, I think that, you know, the president's kind of out in the forefront on all of this, but the truth is, I think it, it's part of a much broader. There's no uh, question about that. Resentment about about the fact that the elites, I would say, across the entire political spectrum, really didn't pay attention to the consequences uh, for a lot of average working people. Yes, we are siloed in our metropolitan areas that are thriving uh, in this new economy, in rural areas where. Uh, uh, people are, are, are not. His America First philosophy, it stresses national sovereignty, it's rooted in, in, in a kind of anti-trade, anti-immigrant uh, view, which is common to these other movements uh, as well. Uh, are we in a new historical epic here? Uh, are we sort of going back to where we were before uh, the war, where nationalism uh, sort of takes root, and, uh, and, and is, is there a danger that we're going to wander into conflicts that uh, perhaps we wouldn't have before? Well, I, I think that there is a lot of um, anxiety and, and I would say uh, exhaustion on the part of the American people with um, the global role that the United States has played over the last um, 20 years. I, I think that uh, the, the feeling that after, I think a huge impact, David, is 17 years of war. Yeah. And, and people are seeing this as a manifestation of the U.S. taking on global responsibilities and spending several trillion dollars that could have been more effectively spent in their view here at home. So I think, I, think, I think, frankly, these same elites have always underestimated the enduring power of nationalism in the UK, because it's part of the Brexit, in France, uh, in China, and in the United States. And I mean, my view is how do you, how, a president always has the first responsibility to look out for the United States of America. The worry that I have is how do you do that while still appreciating the fact that the, one of the unique strengths we have in the world is our alliances? And how do you press for others to carry their own weight and actually have impact while at the same time trying to keep these alliances intact and healthy. And, you know, my last speech as Secretary of Defense in Europe, I told them, it was at, in Brussels uh, before a NATO audience. I basically said, I am the last senior American official, national security official you will ever encounter who has an emotional tie to NATO. Because I was there for the last half of the Cold War and saw the role NATO played. But this is in 2011, I said, a new generation of politicians is coming to power in the United States, in the Congress, and inevitably in the presidency. 
they're going to have a very different view. And they're going to look at this alliance in a cost-benefit analysis and your failure to carry your own weight, to bear the burden that the United States bears, or to share that burden, is, is going to weigh very negatively. I, I remember that. That was eight years I, ago. I, I know, <laughs> I, and I remember that. And, and, you know, the one thing that one must say is that Trump has, has jawboned NATO, and you have seen more of an investment uh, by these countries in their, uh, their own defense. But he's been pretty tough on our allies. At times it seems tougher on our allies than our adversaries. And that has long-term consequences, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm especially worried about Germany. Um, the Germans have basically um, uh, uh, given us a gesture of defiance when it comes to doing 2% of their GDP on defense. They've said, we're going to go up a little bit. They're at, I think, 1.2 or 1.3. They're going to go up to maybe a percent and a half. But then they said, after a couple of years, we're going back down. And we don't care what you say. And, and we want them to stop uh, collaborating in the construction of this Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany, mm -hmm. which will increase Germany's dependence on Russia for energy and also create real problems for Poland and Ukraine. And, um, you know, one of the things that strategists have worried about ever since World War I, and really back into the 19th century, is you, you do not want a free-floating neutral Germany. This was why it was so important to Bush 41, George H.W. Bush, that when Germany was reunified, it would be reunified in NATO to tether Germany to the West because you don't want Germany free-floating between Russia uh, and, and the United States or Western Europe. So I think, I think some of the language, some of the personal attacks, uh, I think, have made this worse than it needed to be. I, I will give him credit. I mean, he has produced results in most of the European countries in terms of increases in their in their security. Um, and the question I've always had is, is there a middle road between the rhetoric that I and others like me used against the allies and their failure to carry their fair share of the burden, which frankly had no results, produced nothing. Right. And, and the president's uh, over-the-top pressure yeah. and personal attacks nuances in that, his, have, that have produced results, <laughs> but at a, at a considerable cost. And you'd hope that there was some middle ground, but I'm not sure what it is. So one of my uh, big concerns, you mentioned technology and globalization. Technology is churning faster and faster. Change is coming faster and faster. And liberal democracies are moving slower because they're designed to move slow when countries are divided. And I think it creates this tension uh, and sense of doubt uh, that drives people in the direction of authoritarian. This is the argument that the Chinese make, that they're better suited to deal with the challenges and the opportunities of this century because authoritarian regimes can move more quickly. They can plan for the future uh, better than liberal democracies. I think, I think our economic crisis in 2008 and 2009 was a turning point. And not just for us in many ways, but for countries like China, and especially China, because 
all of a sudden it was obvious that our political system wasn't producing what it needed to produce. But what that economic crisis showed was that our economic system wasn't working either. And, and so the Chinese now are in a position, and frankly, uh, Xi Jinping is, is not shy about pose, uh, positing China as an alternative model of governance and development. You know, do it our way, and, and people, I mean, they've brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a very short period of time. They have all this extraordinary infrastructure, and they say, basically, we can get stuff done, and we can bring prosperity to people. So give me a little hope here. Well, I think, I think, you know, people often ask me, what's, what's the greatest national security danger to the United States? And I've been saying for quite some time that I think the biggest national security threat lies within the two square miles that encompass the White House and the Capitol building. Because in all honesty, if we can't figure out a way to get stuff done and address some of our big problems here at home, um, we're at much bigger risk than from any foreign threat. And the, and the problem is, you know, it's just like President Bush, 43, put forward a really impressive, comprehensive immigration uh, proposal in 2007. It actually had quite a bit of bipartisan support, but it failed. And I think if there ever is a legislative solution, it'll look a lot like what Bush put on the table. But we couldn't get it done. Yeah. There was a bipartisan bill that passed the Senate in 2013 yeah. with 67 votes yeah. couldn't get through the House. Yeah. And, and if we can't, and, and you know, we've always had polarization. I like to tell people at least, I mean, going back to the founders, I said, at least it's been a long time since we had a former vice president shoot and kill yes. the former secretary of the exactly, Treasury. Yeah. That was and, harsh. And, and so we've always had political polarization in the United States. But what's new really in the last 25 years or so is paralysis. The inability to get anything of any real consequence done. Every now and then you'll get a bill that gets stuffed up. Uh, President Clinton, the welfare reform bill and so on. But but it's pretty, they're pretty few and far between, and they're not tackling any of the really big issues, whether it's infrastructure or immigration or public education and so yeah. on. We didn't have, uh, uh, in the days of uh, Hamilton, uh, ca- uh, cable television, social media, all the things that make, make compromise more difficult. Um, let me ask you about a few quick uh, uh, ish tariffs. President has used them I don't know if the word liberally is the right way to say it, but uh, we're in a trade war with China. He's now brandishing them to Mexico, not as a matter of trade, but to try and influence their policies on immigration. Is this a winning strategy? I think that, first of all, on China, I think that I give... uh, the administration credit for challenging the Chinese um, because they're really, it's really the first administration to challenge them. And the irony is, I think President Trump's negotiators understand what the key issues are. And the key issues are the structural imbalances and lack of reciprocity on joint investment, on foreign investment, on joint ventures rather, on uh, prote- protecting intellectual property and these things. Actually, China needs those kinds of structural reforms for its own good uh, mm-hmm. to grow in the future. 
and being tough on those issues and hanging tough, I think, makes a lot of sense. The president, I think, sees the China economic relationship purely in terms of the trade balance imbalance. And, and that's kind of secondary. And, and, and so if the tariffs are a means to getting structural change, then it's worth having the fight. But my, one of my worries is, frankly, that the administration backs off in an exchange for the yeah. Chinese sort of saying, we'll buy it. Farmers, we'll buy farmers it. are taking a lot a more soybeans. That's, that doesn't solve the problem. We've got an election next year. Farmers are taking a beating. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a real possibility. He also sees these things as political fights. He campaigned against China, campaigned on immigration. These are big, visible yeah. uh, steps. Uh, you mentioned Mexico. Is that wise? Well, I think it, it, the interesting thing is the United States has not for 30 years, for all practical purposes, used economic leverage for geopolitical or geostrategic reasons. Um, we've used our economic leverage uh, when we've applied sanctions, it's been to punish somebody and, uh, and so on. And, and what we haven't done is what the Chinese do, which is use our economic leverage and use that economic leverage over here to tackle a completely different political problem over here. Um, Chinese did this with the South Koreans in 2017 when they agreed to deploy the THAAD and the Chinese cut off a lot of imports. And so the but the point is that, I mean, my view is that, well, for openers, I, I think it's strategically unwise to antagonize every country in the world simultaneously. I think we ought to establish some priorities. We ought to understand um, um, the nature of the, the, I mean, the critical nature of the trading relationship with both Number Canada and Mexico, partner, yeah. yeah, and 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 realize the disruption that that will cause, and and you know if now so the president has threatened these tariffs, but what if Obrador now says, okay, we'll do something about these large numbers of Central Americans moving through Mexico? In a way, the question should be. Why didn't the Mexicans act before now to do something about this? I mean, it is a huge problem. I, I just think, I, I think that it's too, we're applying them too broadly to too many countries all at the same time. And it's not clear what the priorities are or what the long-term strategy is. And in some cases, it's not clear precisely what the outcome is. I mean, one of the, one of the criticisms of, of the imposition of these tariffs on Mexico is, so what, what, what specifically, what are the benchmarks for Mexico? What has to change to pull the tariffs back? And that's not clear. Uh, I, got, I have to talk to you about Russia. You were a Russia expert before you entered public life half a century ago or so. That's how you started out studying Russia. Today, Russia seems like a degraded power, but a first-rate provocateur. Uh, tell me how we, should, how we should be dealing with Russia right now. Well, I think, I think that um, Putin, 
Putin's initial objectives were essentially to restore Russia as a great power, uh, sort of pre-collapse of the Soviet Union, and, and to establish a buffer of frozen conflicts or friendly states on the periphery of Russia. But I think after the color revolutions in Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan and Georgia in 2003, 2004, I think Putin concluded that we were trying, that he was next, that the West was trying to overthrow him. And then, and then um, in the election of 2011, parliamentary election in late 2011, and Secretary Clinton's speeches uh, criticizing the lack of free elections, he saw as outright interference in the Russian election. And he had never seen anti-Putin demonstrations in Moscow before. So this really antagonized him. So I think Putin is now in the position where one of his primary objectives is wherever in the world he can create problems for the United States, he will do that. And, the, and he is also determined to uh, accentuate divisions between ourselves and our allies, but also to exploit differences within each of our countries, mm -hmm. whether it's the United States or France or the UK. I mean, we know the Russians, we, talk, we know about the Russians and us in 2016, but they were very much involved in the, in the Brexit uh, election. Not just they loaned, the EU elections. They loaned, they loaned millions of dollars to Marie Le Pen's yes. right-wing party in France. And, and so I think he's really determined to create as many problems for the West in as many places as he possibly can. And, and he, he's a provocateur and he's a spoiler. And, and he's been pretty successful at it. I, I mean, I've, I think that the way you deal... Putin is a classic bully. And the only way you deal with Putin, in my view, is from a position of strength. So let me ask you a question. When you saw the president in Helsinki stand on the same platform and say, uh, Putin assures me that they had nothing to do with meddling in our elections, and, and I see no reason not to believe him when American intelligence was very, very clear on this, and now we have the Mueller report as well. What message does that send to Putin? Well, I think he, I think he thinks he has a friend in the White House, and uh, you know it would have been nice to see the president do a few winks and and so on, even if he was saying that for diplomacy's sake. But I, I think that, I mean, it, it's it's a little bit like the trade negotiations with China. The administration is correct when they say they've imposed some of the toughest sanctions on Russia ever, and and yet the, you have the president's rhetoric that's in a very different uh, place in terms of Russia. And so you have the actions of the administration, which are what they ought to be doing, and then you have some of the president's rhetoric, which conveys that uh, he thinks well, Putin's a really great guy. As you know, this is one place where Congress actually has acted as yeah. one, and they kind of forced some of these that's sanctions right. uh, on the president. Jim Clapper, uh, General Clapper, is someone I deeply respect, uh, colleague now at... At, at CNN, you, you were longtime collaborators. He was your undersecretary for intelligence at, uh, at the Pentagon. I think you were the one who recommended to the president that he become the director of uh, national intelligence. Um, he has become a target of the president. He's been very critical of him. Have you talked to, to General Clapper about his concerns? No, but I've, I've known Jim Clapper for... Um 
um, going on 30 years. When I was director of Central Intelligence uh, back under Bush 41, uh, Jim was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I've, I've known him all that time. He's a man of, in my view, of uh, complete integrity, and uh, um, I have a lot of respect for him. Did it trouble you when you hear some of the things the president has said about him? Yeah, of course. And what about the intelligence community generally? You're a former director. This, among your many hats <laughs> over many years, you're also a former director of the CIA, where you worked for decades. What impact does it have on the intelligence community to have uh, this open rift between the president and the intelligence agency and people like Clapper who are very well respected, John Brennan, very well respected. Well, it hasn't, in the past, it hasn't been as personal, but I will tell you from personal experience that um, most presidents don't much like CIA and, and have been critical. Richard Nixon was once quoted as saying, what the hell do those clowns do out there in Langley? And after the fall of the Shah, Jimmy Carter sent the director a, a handwritten note saying, I am not satisfied with the quality of our intelligence. And uh, most presidents have had issues with the intelligence community. And one of the reasons is because whenever the intelligence uh, analysts write a piece assessing what's going on in a foreign country, the president and the secretary of state often look at it as a grade card on how they're doing. And, and if the administration is saying things are going great in country X and CIA issues an assessment that says actually things aren't going very well in country X, part of the problem is that, is that uh, disagreement. But the other part of it that really gets under the skin of presidents is that all the analysis the CIA does goes to the Congress. And I used to tell our analysts uh, when they would go up to brief. I said, just always remember, the members of Congress aren't looking for enlightenment. They're looking for ammunition. And so, that's how the presidents see it. So, but you know, the presidents... Well, no, well... I mean, he, he has basically accused the intelligence community and the FBI of being involved in a, an operation against him. I would say, I would say that, first of all, uh, that those, those differences are much more public than they have been under previous presidents, and, and more personal. There's no doubt about it. The, you know, now we know, Mueller laid it out, in, and you know him as well, uh, Mueller laid it out in, in, in detail what the Russians uh, were up to. Wouldn't it, wasn't it the responsibility of the FBI with the assistance when they needed it of the CIA overseas to run these rumors to ground that turned out to be absolutely true? Well, you know, I wasn't there at the time, so I, I don't know what they did or what they didn't do, but I would say as a matter of general principle, any evidence that a foreign power was trying to interfere in an American election should have elicited a very strong reaction from the intelligence community, the FBI, uh, and frankly, our political leaders. Do you think uh, the Obama administration was strong enough in response? Based on what I know just reading the newspapers and so on, probably not. Mm -hmm. um, and what should we do now headed into 2020? Because they're clearly, as you say, Putin has made his, made his choice. He is involved in a full-scale subversion campaign worldwide to try and weaken the Western alliance and certainly the United States. What should we be doing now? Well, 
again, there's a difference in my view between the actions of the administration and and the rhetoric. And and my impression is that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security and uh, and the intelligence community are working very hard to try and identify what the Russians are doing, and trying block and try to block it. Um, and the Congress, I think, has been has been concerned. The the I think the problem is that that endeavor really needs leadership from the top. It needs the president to say, we're not going to allow any foreign country to uh, interfere with our elections, and we will take whatever steps are necessary. Why doesn't he? Why don't you think he? I don't know. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, I know you, you are, that is not necessarily your favorite topic. <laughs> But uh, just a little bit of history. You were born in Kansas. So far as I know, you grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting uh, <laughs> in Kansas. Um, your, your parents, you wrote, were a mixed marriage, a Republican and a Democrat. Um, but did you have a thought then about politics? Could you see yourself in government, really? I mean, you probably deny that you've ever been involved in politics. But did, did you have any sense of that? No, when I went to college, I, I enrolled in pre-med. I wanted to be a surgeon. And as I've often told people since then, God only knows how many lives have been saved <laughs> by my becoming head of CIA and Secretary of Defense <laughs> instead of a doctor. But no, I, I, I always loved history and read a lot of history as a kid. Um, but, but when I first went to college, I, I was... Um, I was intent on becoming a surgeon, but I went, I went to the College of William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, which is where really the first steps toward independence were taken in many respects, where Jefferson and Washington and Madison and Monroe and Patrick Henry were all there in Williamsburg in the House of Burgesses and, and taking the first steps toward independence and, and the whole town has been restored and walking those streets and just you know being in those buildings the capitol building and 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 where the resolutions for independence were taken and virginia was obviously central to the whole independence uh, to success um, had a big impact on me and so probably my second year at William and Mary, I changed my major. You know, listening to you. But then I wanted to teach. I had no intention of going to government. You went to Indiana University and got a master's yeah. degree. And Listen. when I got my master's, I had two job offers in hand. One was to teach seventh grade history back in Williamsburg, and the second was to go to work for CIA. I said, well, I'll go to work for CIA for a little while, and then I'll go teach. Uh, listening to you talk about Washington reminds me, my mother used to say when I was a kid, I was kind of a pain, and she would say, I love you, I just hate the things you do. <laughs> That's the way you speak with such reverence about Washington uh, and the iconic, and I can consider Williamsburg an extension of that and the iconic nature of, of the place, but not necessarily the pathologies uh, that uh, Yeah, and they it. were present then, too. <laughs> you, um, uh, you had a, uh, you, you were in the Air Force, you were at a missile def- a missile defense? Uh, no, an ICBM base. Uh-huh. In fact, <clears throat> one time, my first visit to Hanoi, um, Minister of Security came over, and this was back in the 90s, 
came over and he said, well, were you here during the war? And I said, no, during the war I was targeting ICBMs on your Soviet patron just in case he got out of hand. <laughs> and the guy kind of got shocked and then all of a sudden he just burst out laughing. He said, that's good, that's good. <laughs> you, you, uh, and then you went back and you were in the CIA, you spent some time in the National uh, Security Council. Uh, in the 80s, uh, you had a kind of meteoric rise in the CIA and, and you were appointed uh, by President Reagan, I guess, to be CIA director. And you had to withdraw. You had to withdraw because of the fallout from the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, some of your analysis of Russia. But how, for a guy who had had this meteoric rise, how was it to have this setback? Well, you know, I, um, I think that I, I like to tell young people. I say, if, if you've if you've never had a failure, um, your, your your education is incomplete. Um, you know, I never um, I never got into any real trouble because of it. But and David Boren, who was the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, told me at the time. He said, if you're if you're willing to wait six months, we'll get you confirmed. And he was a Democrat. Right. And. Um, and I went to President Reagan and I said, you know, I don't think CIA can be without a permanent leader for six months. And I think I'll, I'll stay on as deputy if you want me to, but I think you need to get somebody different. And, and, and frankly, one of the reasons why um, I still had a future in front of me was because the Congress still trusted me and because of the way I conducted myself uh, in light, because I ended up still being the acting director for another three or four months after uh, withdrawing. And, um, you know, I frankly, I'd never expected to become the deputy director, much less the director. And I think, I think the key is um, you, you just have to keep a sense of perspective. And, you know, I... I loved working with Bill Webster, who was appointed by President Reagan, the then director of the FBI, became the director of CIA. Um, and, um, and I actually, the whole thing, ironically, ended up creating some opportunities for me I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. You went into the national, back to the National Security Council uh, under President Bush. Uh, the first, 43, uh, 41. And you were, you were there, ultimately you did get the CIA job, but you were there uh, during the, obviously the fall of the... It was the most amazing closure you could possibly get. I joined CIA to do my bit in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union collapsed six weeks after I became director of Central Intelligence. But to be you with... Did, did you claim to credit be with, <laughs> To be to be with Bush two or three or four hours a day while he was managing uh, this, the, the, the uh, liberation of Eastern Europe, the reunification of Germany and NATO, the, um, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Gulf War. It was an amazing time, but to have spent your life in Russian studies and uh, have graduate degrees in it, and, and to join CIA to fight the Soviet Union, and then to be there when we actually won was an extraordinary experience. You also, as you, you knew, mentioned... You knew every day you went into the office, history was being made. 
You also uh, mentioned uh, his uh, stewardship of the Gulf War. And the thing that stood out about that was the, we talked about alliances before the international coalition that he built uh, routed the Iraqis from Kuwait, uh, did not uh, follow uh, Saddam back to Saddam back to, uh, uh, to, to topple him. Uh, but uh, because he didn't have the mandate to do it. The, he felt he didn't have the international mandate to do it. Uh, years later, when the U.S. went into uh, Iraq, there wasn't that kind of global coalition. Um, was that a mistake to move forward without building the kind of architecture that, that the first President Bush built? Well, I think, I think ultimately there were... Um at least nominally, a couple of dozen different countries. That, Coalition of the that, Willing, uh, some of them quite small. Cooperated, yeah. But that was the case in, in 91 as well. I mean, I always, I always used to joke that General Schwarzkopf should have gotten a medal for one of his great achievements, which was out of 36 countries, how do you keep 34 of their military contributions busy while the other two do all the fighting? Do you, uh, you, you, you supported the, the, the war in Iraq um, Actually, yeah. I, gave, I gave a speech six weeks after, uh, a public speech six weeks after the invasion. <clears throat> and I said that um, the concern that I have is that we're a little bit like the dog that caught the car. What do you do with it now? And I said in the speech that I thought that the post-military, the post-invasion problems were going to be much harder and much more difficult than the military uh, piece of it and that and that the, the challenges inside Iraq were just enormous but the concluding line in the speech was if we have a hundred thousand troops there six months from now this is in May of 2003 we will have had a catastrophe yeah and it was a catastrophe when you when you were called back uh, in 2006, uh, the war was being lost, uh, and public opinion was dramatically negative. Actually, we were losing two wars when I was in Afghanistan and yeah. uh, Iraq. You you were uh, down at Texas A&M, happily ensconced, uh, leading that institution. Why did you come back, and did you know what you were work, walking into? So, a year and a half earlier, I'd been asked to become the first director of national intelligence by Bush. And after really wrestling with it for a couple of weeks, um, I told him no, I wanted to stay at A&M. And partly it was because I'd opposed the creation of the job and now they were asking me to come figure out how to make it work. And, and I just felt like I hadn't made enough progress on my agenda at Texas A&M. And I loved A&M. But when uh, the National Security Advisor, Steve Hadley, called me in October of 2006 and said, if the president asked you to become Secretary of Defense, uh, would you agree? And I said, Steve, um, there are um, thousands of kids out there putting their lives on the line every day, doing their duty. How could I not do mine? And I said, of course, I'll do it. And the <laughs> I, told, I remember hanging up and saying, my God, what am I going to tell my wife? And, yeah. and one of the things I told her, I said, you know, the president's just lost control of both houses of Congress and we're losing two wars. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you and you managed the surge and the surge uh, was successful and uh, the election of 2008 came around. You know, I was, I was struck by, uh, you know, your, your views on Congress. I think you wrote in your book about uh, Jack Reed, the senator from Rhode Island. I think you said one of the few people I had a high regard for. You know, there are 538 of them, so I took that as a statement of sorts. Um, but the, I'm sure you know that the leader of the Democratic uh, Democrats in the Senate, Harry Reid, uh, called, uh, by then I guess the majority leader, uh, called Barack Obama in the summer of 2008 and said, you ought to ask Bob Gates to be your running mate for vice president. Um, you knew that? I did not know, actually, he had called Obama. I, I did get a call from Harry Reid. I remember the first question he asked me was, what's your position on abortion? <laughs> and I'm the Secretary of Defense. I said, I have no position. And, and he said, well, I think you ought to, I think you ought to um, be the vice president. And I, you know, I, I told my secretary when I hung up, I, said, I think he's smoking something. <laughs> yeah. But I had no idea he'd actually called. Oh, yeah, he called and it was, it was uh, taken seriously. Um, the president did come back, uh, President Obama, and ask you to stay on, which was an unusual Unprecedented. request. Um, were you reluctant? No. No, I, for the same reason that I told um, Steve Hadley and President Bush. We, we were still engaged in these two wars, uh, and, and I felt like, you know, if I can help, uh, how, how can I not? agree to stay on and um, you know um, I had um, when Jack Reed had first reached out to me about a meeting I said well I can't do that before the election but I said you know why don't I just send you some questions that are on my mind that can frame a discussion and I remember Jack coming back to me a couple of weeks later and saying do you want the answers in writing I said Jack, it's not a test. It's a conversation. <laughs> and sure enough, when uh, the president-elect and I met in the firehouse in, yeah, uh, at Reagan, Reagan Airport, Airport yeah. um, he pulls that list of questions out, but it, it really went at a lot of these issues. And the first one was, why should you trust me? Because we don't know each other. But I went on to talk about the defense budget and Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. And who's the team going to be? And when, when we were all done, uh, I thought, uh, I, I, I felt confident we could work together. One of the contentious issues um, during your period in that, uh, the two years that you served uh, under the Obama administration, I, I mean, contentious, I, I think it's been made out to be something that it wasn't, but there was a definitely some tension over how many troops to send to Afghanistan in a process that you, you've written about and I've written about slightly different uh, perspectives. I don't want to uh, rehearse that, but now we're, we're almost 18 years into the war there. We have a fraction of the troops we had at the peak of the surge, but still we are there. Uh, how does this end, or does it? Is this, a, is this just a never-ending commitment? Well, I think, you know, we've, we've had 
troops in South Korea since 1950. We've had troops in Germany since 1945. They're there for different reasons and so on. But um, how long would you, if it, if we could sustain a an elected government in in uh, Kabul that protects the rights of women? I mean, if the Taliban take over just willy-nilly and there's no political agreement. Uh, for all the trouble we have had in Afghanistan, for all the lives we've lost, for all the treasure that's been spent, the fact remains there are five million girls in school in Afghanistan. Women are in the parliament. Women are part of the society in a way. There's a relatively free press. Do we just chuck it all? I mean, it's a, a it's, a very, it's a very tough problem. Do you think a political uh, agreement with the Taliban is achievable? Well, I think I think there can be no political there can be no uh, political outcome to this conflict without recognizing that the Taliban are a part of the political fabric uh, in Afghanistan. And the question is, do you get a deal that simply provides a decent interval before the Taliban takes mm-hmm. over, or or can you construct some kind of a deal where the Taliban uh, agree to basic principles under the Afghan constitution and are willing to participate as a political um, con- uh, as a political party. But at the end of the day, it also comes down to can the government in Kabul gain the confidence of enough of its people and establish a strong enough security capability that they can keep the Taliban from simply taking over, overrunning the country like North Vietnam did, uh, the South in 1975. I mean, again, it's a very tough problem, but, but it's part of how do you negotiate, what will the Taliban do, but also um, what is the Afghan government itself able to do? You have written about, and I, I know, and I know from working for the president who, who was moved in the same way, and I had the chance to go to Iraq and Afghanistan with him and see these splendid young people. Some of them had to do on your orders, on his orders, um, President Bush's orders, four, five tours of duty. Um, many lost their lives, many limbs, and many came back with psychological scars of the, the, that repeated horror of, of, of war. We have 20 suicides a day uh, among veterans. It's, it's a national crisis. Um, and have we met our obligations to these, uh, to these young people who serve? No, I don't think so. But I must say it's not, it's not for a lack of people trying. Um, I mean, just as an example, Michelle Obama and Jill Biden were very engaged in the effort to try and help find jobs and, and create opportunities for returning veterans. Companies have stepped up. I was on the board of Starbucks until last year, and Starbucks committed to hiring 25,000 veterans. Wall Street, 100,000 veterans. Walmart, 100,000 veterans. So there's a lot of people out there working at this, but the the challenge is how do you make them feel part of a community again that people actually recognize you know it's not enough just to say thanks for your service but 
how do you reintegrate people into the community? How do you make them feel part of a team again, the thing that was so important to each of them? Um, and, and how do you help them wrestle with, uh, with the problems that, that they've uh, brought back with them as a result of the conflicts? And, you know, there's been a lot of effort to, uh, to reform Veterans Affairs. It's been going on for 10 years yes. or more. Um, I think we're still not there, but I think we're making some headway. I mean, just as an example, so, so one of the things, very quickly, that, I mean, these guys go, men and women go from being part of a very closely knit unit where they've got mutual support, and then they, they come disproportionately from rural areas and small towns, and all of a sudden they're back home and they're alone. And, and there's no other veterans around them or, and, and no care facilities within a reasonable distance. And how do, you, how do you take those people and create an environment in which they can reintegrate and, and be great citizens? And the truth is, the vast majority already do that. The vast majority um, come back, they adjust, they deal with the problems just like they did in World War II and after Korea. And they move on with their lives, and they're mm -hmm. mentally healthy, and they're contributing, and everything else. The problem is that subset that have had those difficulties and find it difficult to overcome them. And and there is obviously more we can do. And the, to tell you the truth, I think a big part of the solution is not the government, but society itself, and whether it's businesses or churches or uh, other. Uh, organizations in Providing small some, towns yeah. that that create a sense of bonding and and uh, of of support. I have to ask you about the Bin Laden raid, uh, partly because there's an iconic photo that goes along with this that I think will be one of the most famous photos of our of our of our time. You were opposed to the raid uh, initially, and really. Uh, until your staff persuaded you at the end that it was it was something that should go forward, and you said you were sort of the prisoner of your own experience. Well, I was. I had been in that same room, the Situation Room, thirty almost exactly thirty years earlier when we tried the uh, hostage rescue mission in Iran, which was a complete disaster. Which, by the way, also the disaster started with a helicopter crash. Yes. So but, but my opposition to the raid, I, I wanted to attack the compound. I wanted to kill bin Laden. There was no question about that. The question is whether to do it with a drone or do it, do it some other way than going in. The, the argument was the only way we would know that we'd got him was to have people on the ground and, and to seize whatever materials he had. My concern about a ground operation or about the SEALs going in was tied solely to the future of the war in Afghanistan. My concern was that the Pakistanis would be so antagonized by a raid into their territory that they would shut down our lines of communication from Karachi to Afghanistan and we would lose the war in Afghanistan overnight. That was my biggest concern mm -hmm. about the raid. Uh, I had no doubts about the capabilities of the team or the military plan or anything else. And, um, and, and as you say, uh, um, it turned out uh, that uh, 
uh, it obviously worked out very well. I have to say about the photograph, and I don't know if you were a part of this or not. I was gone by then. Uh, okay, so I got a photoshopped copy of that picture with all the key players in superhero costumes. So yes. Obama's uh, Superman, Biden's Spider-Man, Hillary naturally is Wonder Woman, and for some reason I'm the Green Lantern. I saw that. And, and, and we all had a good laugh, but then I held it up and I said, Mr. President, these pictures are why you must never release the photographs of the dead bin Laden because somebody will Photoshop them and anger a billion Muslims. And yeah. it'll put our troops at risk. It'll put Americans in the Middle East at risk. And to the best of my knowledge, David, those photographs are the only thing about that raid that's never leaked. Um, you, you said you've talked about other presidents, the President Bush's decision to go forward with the, uh, uh, with the surge, which was quite unpopular. I think President Ford's decision, maybe, was that the one to pardon, to pardon Nixon. a president? But what about the... President Obama's decision to, on not 100% verifiable uh, intelligence, to go forward with this uh, in his first term when he was going to have to run for re-election. Oh, I, I thought, and I wrote, that I thought it was one of the most courageous acts that I'd seen a president um, carry out. Uh, because there, we, didn't have a, we didn't have a shred of solid evidence. The entire case was circumstantial, put together by a group of analysts out of CIA. It was the best case we'd seen uh, since Tora Bora back in 2001, but, um, but there was no solid evidence at all. And, and I think that the, the Iranian hostage crisis and the failure of the rescue mission contributed to President Carter's defeat in 1980. The economy didn't help, but, right. but this was, a, was also a big issue. And so I think there was uh, really a, a big political risk for the president. Uh, you know, one of the things that I never, uh, that I don't think either one of us ever thought would happen was um, when, when he initially, when we initially talked about my taking the job, we talked about my doing it for about a year. And as I like to say, I put a period at the end of that sentence and he put a comma. <laughs> And I ended up actually working for him longer at two and a half years, longer than I did for President Bush. And as ter things turned out, I ended up being Obama's longest serving Secretary of Defense. Yeah. You, one of the guys in the room was Vice President Biden, who's now uh, running for president. He, he clashed with uh, the Pentagon and with the leadership over Afghanistan. Uh, and, and you've been fairly critical uh, of him. Um, at one point, you said you've amended this. They said he was wrong in every foreign policy issue uh, for 40 years. Um, are you, would you be comfortable with him as commander-in-chief? Well, I think we'd have to wait and see. I don't want to go down that road with anybody, frankly, but, but I think that um, I think that um, I think the Vice President did have some issues with the military. And, um, and I, I did say that uh, recently that uh, I stand by the statement that I thought he'd been wrong about most, most foreign policy issues for 40 years, especially during the Cold War. Um, but in truth, apart from Afghanistan, there were a number of issues he and I agreed on. Um, uh, our opposition to intervening in Libya, for example, and the way Mubarak was treated in Egypt and so on. But, 
you know, he's obviously got a lot of experience, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for a long time, and, um, you know, we'll just have to see how these things play out. You, you, meant, you say you're not, you can't say whether you'd be comfortable with him as commander-in-chief. Are you, are you comfortable with the current commander-in-chief? Well, I'm just not going to go down that road. Okay. Um, I, right. I, just, I just wanted uh, noted that I gave you the invitation to go down, <laughs> uh, to go down that road. Um, you also mentioned the issue of age, and I mean, obviously, he is a contemporary of yours. Um, but there are other candidates, including the president himself, who are, are as well. Um, I sat next to the president. Uh, I know how taxing that job is. You've raised questions about whether anybody uh, should be in that job. I mean, should there be an age limit for the president? You were there when President Reagan, at the end of his yeah. term, and obviously he was, he was uh, slipping into, we learned later, dementia. Is there, do you have concerns about anybody? I just, I, my concern is that... Um, it's, it's, it's not the level of energy uh, for certain periods of time. It's the level of energy that I think is required over a protracted period of time. And it's the fact that you're dealing with 20 different complex issues simultaneously and, and all the politics and everything. And it's, you know, it's three-dimensional chess every day. And, and I just, you know, I mean, I know how exhausted I was when I left as Secretary of Defense after four and a half years. Uh, and I didn't realize how exhausted I was. And I just, I, I, I worry, I mean, I'm, and I'm just talking about myself. There's a certain point at which you have to recognize you don't have the same energy level that you did when you were in your 60s. I mean, things have changed. I mean, it's sort of 75 is the new 60 or whatever, I hope. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, I do think that um, there's a question there. And, and there's also a question about, I would say, intellectual curiosity and intellectual flexibility. How willing are you to change your views? Are you to adjust your views in light of changed circumstances? And the truth is, the older most of us get, the more set in our ways we get. Let me ask you about leadership. Uh, you've had a chance to, you work for eight presidents. You had a chance to study a lot of leaders in action, including military leaders. But I, I want to focus on the president. A, a little bit of a, 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 a side trip here. Um, you, General Mc, uh, Mattis is someone you know well, uh, served while you were Secretary of Defense. Uh, you probably knew General McMaster as well. Rex Tillerson was someone you knew and I think recommended uh, to the president. They're all gone now. What are their absences mean? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think that um, as an example, you know, I don't know Pat Shanahan, the, the prospective nominee for defense, defense. Uh, well, but what I do know is that, you know, every secretary brings a different set of skills to the job. And, and if, you know, if the principal challenge now is how do we modernize our military forces and integrate new technologies. I think he's the guy for the job. But I, you know, I think the key is, is not necessarily his personalities, but are there people who are still willing to tell the president when they disagree? 
and it sounds like, just from what I read in the newspapers, that there are disagreements within the White House and that those are put in front of the president. And as long as, I mean, for me, the key is you, you can argue and debate with the president uh, until he makes a decision. But you do need people around the president who will tell him that's a mistake or doing that would be a wrong thing to do or would be counterproductive or whatever, but basically to say this is a bad idea. And, and, and you do that, and when the president makes a decision, you have two choices. You either say yes, sir, and go implement the decisions, or you resign. The worst of all possible worlds, and I've seen this before, are people who disagree and stay and then try to undercut the decisions. You saw this in the Obama administration. We've seen it in every administration. That's the worst of all possible worlds. So the question is, are there people around the president with, with Tillerson and Kelly and Mattis and McMaster gone, are there still people around the president who disagree with him and who are willing to tell him when they think that something is not going the right way? And my sense is, just based on newspaper articles from the fights inside the White House, there still appear to be such people. You knew John McCain well, uh, probably battled with him at times, but uh, indisputably a, uh, a person who sacrificed greatly for this country, loved the country. What was your reaction when you saw over in Japan that they covered up the name on, on, the, uh, on the ship, uh, on the carrier uh, that was named for him and his father and his grandfather, all uh, honored servicemen? I, I, I thought that was a very poor show. I thought that was outrageous. Should, they, should, should there have been resistance to that? Um, you know, the question is, you know, you go back to the Bush administration. Are you going to fire the advance guy that pushed, put the mission accomplished banner up on the on the aircraft carrier when? Should have honestly, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, the, but the military I, had to cooperate in that, right? Yeah, I, I mean, those kinds of things. I, I mean, I have seen look with all these presidents. I have seen advanced people do really crazy things. And, and as long as it's not illegal or, you know, immoral or whatever, people try to accommodate uh, what, what the president's team uh, wants him to do. I've also seen a lot of advanced guys do things the president didn't know anything about. What does it say about him that they felt that he would be upset if he saw John McCain's name? Well, I mean, it's no secret what he thinks about McCain. So, you know, he'd have to be living in a cave for the last <laughs> two years not to know that. So eight presidents, what, what, are, what, what are the kind of the most important things or the most important thing that you've learned watching all of them very different, all of them with strengths and weaknesses? What's the most important quality that a president and a leader can have? So in 1933, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was asked his opinion of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And he said, you know, he has a second-rate intellect, but a first-rate temperament. And I think at the end of the day, what's most important is a first-rate temperament. You take the greatest presidents, Lincoln, Washington, FDR, 
Eisenhower, Reagan, they weren't necessarily the smartest men in the room, but they had enough self-confidence, their temperament was such, they were comfortable surrounding themselves with people who were smarter than they were, and they would get advice from these people and then integrate it with their own instincts and their own experience and make very wise decisions. And I think, I think the willingness to have people around you who disagree with you, who tell you that that's a bad idea is, is absolutely critical, but that's part of the temperament. So I would say, you know, you can come up with long lists and different skill sets and everything, but at the end of the day, Every one of our greatest presidents has had an extraordinary temperament. MacArthur said old soldiers never die, they just fade away. What about old secretaries of defense? What's <laughs> well, they in do the, interviews. What's in the, what, thank, thank goodness for that, I'm very appreciative. Uh, what's in the, what, what, what is in the future for you? Well, I'm still very much involved in things, uh, and uh, I'm... I've signed up for a second seven-year term as chancellor of the College of William and Mary, and uh, I'm working on what I intend to be my last book, and uh, still doing a lot of speaking around the country. I'm still on the board of the Boy Scouts. And yes, which so is a very much a involved. And what is your uh, what is your level of confidence about our future as a as a country? You know, David, I'm I'm. Despite all of the problems, I'm actually an optimist. And the re- one of the reasons I'm an optimist is I've probably had more experience with young people in this country uh, than almost anybody else. I led the Boy Scouts. I was president of Texas A&M. I was secretary of defense, um, led CIA. And, and I see this rising generation of really amazing young people who are dedicated, who are determined, who want to serve, who are unhappy with where we are, um, who, who I think see the role of the United States in the world uh, in a positive way, and that you know, they'll, they'll differ on the specifics. But I, I just think, I, for me, the, the greatest source of optimism is our young people. Well, as the uh, director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, I heartily <laughs> second that. Secretary Gates, it's always good to see you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, David. My pleasure. See you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.